You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. The New York City Fire Department has a long history of being confronted by challenges that force us to adapt our mindset on the fire ground. Strategy and tactics based on legacy fires have transitioned to the modern fuel load and its pronounced increase in energy release and brought about a change in how we operate. None more than the concepts of fighting fires in high-rise buildings that are impacted by the wind. The FDNY focus was particularly on the multiple dwelling high-rise, simply due to the tragedies that have resulted when wind was a factor. We covered that topic in detail with retired Battalion Chief Jerry Tracy in our June 2023 episode of the podcast. In this episode, we'll continue to explore those concepts when wind is a factor. However, in recent years, we have witnessed a number of fires impacted by the wind in other than high-rise buildings, and the resulting outcomes have created situations that challenge the department in ways that at times has overwhelmed our resources. Wind alone can override the effects of some or all of the other variables that define traditional fire behavior. Today we're going to take a look at this issue, and to help us better understand this is my good friend and 13th Division's very own Deputy Chief George Healy. Hello, Chief. Good to have you here. How are you today, John? Wonderful. Before we get going here, why don't you give us a little bit about your career and how you got involved in this subject matter to begin with? I came in the New York City Fire Department in April of 1991. I was assigned to three truck in Lower Manhattan, where I spent my first seven years Then I was fortunate enough to be chosen to go to Rescue One. I spent three years in Rescue One prior to my promotion in 2000 to lieutenant. As a lieutenant, I covered in the 15th Division and ultimately got a spot in Ladder 174. It was a great firehouse, great working company. Went to a lot of fires in Brooklyn. Got promoted to captain. I was fortunate enough after a time in the 14th Division to cover in special operations in the Rescue Relief Group. Upon promotion to BC in 2005, I was assigned to South Queens, working in the 13th Division and ultimately in the 5-1 Battalion. In 2013, I got promoted to Deputy Chief. I spent a year in the 11th Division and then returned back to the 13th Division, where I've been an assigned deputy until the present time. As a new Battalion Chief back in 2006, I was working in the 4-7 Battalion one day, We wind up having a response to 40-20 Beach Channel Drive. It was a city, high-rise, fireproof, multiple dwelling. Initial reports were that the rear was clear, but then reports from the interior started saying that there was smoke in the hallway. And the first due truck very appropriately gave reports that the apartment door was left open and they were making searches for that apartment door. Now, we have procedures in place in our books now for open-door policies, but at the time, we had yet to develop them. The units went in and located the fire. It was in a bedroom in one of the apartments on the sixth floor. We began our standard operating procedures. A two-and-a-half-inch line was being stretched. And just prior to that line making it to the fire area, window failure occurred, and uh, the fire overtook the operating units. Interestingly enough... That building was the same building that had claimed the life about 10 years earlier of Jimmy Williams in Ladder 121. From that tragedy, lessons were learned, and the units in Rockaway embraced 
what they learned from the tragedy of Jimmy's passing. And that day, very proactively, undertook measures that allowed members to be rescued from that hallway. They also understood the impact of the wind and, and the high pressure and low pressure. So they secured an area of refuge that was on the high pressure, the windward side of that building. So when it was necessary to seek an area of refuge, there was no fall path. They were able to remove themselves from the untenable conditions that were uh, produced in the hall when the wind-impacted fire was created, and they had an area of safety that they could maintain their position in until we were able to implement alternate strategies and, and safely remove them. We definitely saved firefighters' lives that day because those lessons had been learned. What's fascinating about that, they were understanding the flow path before we were using that term. It was their experience in those situations that taught them to have that area of refuge on the same side of the hallway. I find that incredible. Well, and we had had other examples where we had challenges controlling smoke movement and dealing with the effects of the winds in high-rise buildings. It certainly spiked my interest, spiked my desire to learn as much as I could about wind and its impact on fires. At the time, Jerry Tracy was beginning some work with the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies, looking at wind, looking at stairwell pressurization, and that was the foundation for what's now been close to 18 years of my involvement with the fire protection engineering community, looking at fire growth, fire dynamics, ventilation, and fire suppression so we can improve our understanding, our training, our education, and make the fire service better, safer, so we can protect the public. Wind impacting buildings on fire have been around from the beginning of the New York City Fire Department. But why did it seem like, as we rolled into the 80s, when we look at the modern fire environment, we see that increase in uh, the fuel load changing, and that seems to be right about the same time. Do you think there's any connection between what's in our apartments and then wind being a factor and them coming together to create a real problem for us? Your thoughts? Well, certainly the fuel load, as we all know, have changed, and the built environment has changed, right? Our structures have changed. So I think all those things coming together, we know that fires today grow extremely rapidly. Some people sometimes say fires are hotter today. And, and that's really not what the research has proven. Certainly a flashed over room today might release a little bit more heat energy than back in the 70s. But really, I think the more challenging issue for us at hand is the fact that modern fuels transition more quickly, release their energy more quickly, produce more smoke and smoke is fuel, and now you're coupling that with the built environment. All those things are just coming together to make the fire ground extremely challenging. In recent years now, we've had a number of fires in non-fireproof buildings where wind is a factor. And I know this is a very simple concept. You know, a fire does not know what type of building it's in and the wind does not know what type of building it's hitting. We know what the challenges are in the high rise. We did the research and we have alternate strategies, but now how do we approach and how do we handle these same situations in non-firefoot buildings? Absolutely, this isn't just a high rise phenomenon. Anytime wind comes into our fire ground operation, it's gonna have a negative effect on the incident. 
It's going to heighten everything else that's occurring on the fire ground. Fire, we have heat, we have fuel, and we have oxygen. And now if we're really forcing the oxygen into that space, that transition, that fire triangle, everything is going to just be more efficient. So the amount of energy that is being released is going to increase dramatically. And we're going to find ourselves potentially in a position where the capacity for online to control that incident is going to be overwhelmed. What goes through my mind, the difference in the two buildings right off the bat, and maybe this is because I've been working in Manhattan for quite a while now, and, and I, I think the high-rise fireproof building is much more conducive to control. It's not going to burn from floor to floor unless it auto-exposes, which can happen, but it's rare, right? And we have, for the most part, fireproof doors throughout the structure. When we get to that non-fireproof building, now we have a different creature. That fire, as you said, when it does accelerate with the wind, is going to start eating up the building itself. When we look at some of those recent fires, the ones that come to mind in, in my mind, in uh, 2019, in April 3rd, there was a fire in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. What was interesting about that fire, and I believe it was a five-story non-fireproof building, right, fire escapes on the exterior, but was the video that was taken by civilians in and around the building. And from that video, it was very, very clear that wind was playing a role in impacting that building. You know, for years in the fire service, people talked about the concept of reading smoke. And probably about maybe 10 years ago, I think the term that was starting to be introduced was ventilation profile. And vent profile doesn't just look at the smoke, but it looks at the openings. And to me, vent profile is, is all-encompassing. Certainly it is looking at the smoke, and we look at things like volume and turbulence, but it's also very much looking at the inlets, where the air is coming from, the outlets, and hopefully recognizing when wind is a factor. It's not about one face of the building, because a lot of times where our eyes are drawn to where the fire is, really what's of greater concern is opposite, or maybe even adjacent to. You know, the Jimmy Williams fire, there's a video um, and a still of, it's a corner apartment, and the one face of the building just has that eerie orange glow that we've now come to recognize as a wind-impacted fire on the windward side. And right around the corner, a window in that same room, you have that horizontal flow of fire, and it's coming out the lower part of the window. And our expectation is that if fire is venting, it's venting out the upper part of the window. So it does take that extra moment to really look and process, well, is this what's expected? The same thing with smoke. If the whole front of the building is obscured in smoke, we've had, as you know, some, some fires and some people in our organization, and it's understandable, have felt that the stack effect was having an influence on smoke outside the building. Stack effect is a phenomenon that happens in a vertical shaft. It's not a phenomenon that happens on the outside of the building. Now, certainly maybe on a very humid day, the smoke won't readily be lifting as it would on a normal day. But with these wind-impacted fires, what we see a lot of times is that that smoke is really coming straight across from that building, totally obscuring the street, or maybe moving horizontally along the side of a high-rise building or a low-rise. Wind is going to be the overriding consideration 
for implementing the appropriate tax strategy and for having a safe operation. So when our members are approaching buildings that the ventilation profile is clearly showing us that it's wind impacted, what standard operating procedures can they fall back on to mitigate what we all know is an extremely dangerous situation? Well, when looking at non-fireproof buildings, you know, we always have tools in our toolbox. We can certainly use an aerial ladder stretch. That fire I had in, in Queens that day, again, the nature of the building it was a fireproof building. It was a single scissor stair. It didn't give us a way of either flanking the fire or maybe breaching to extinguish the fire. So basically a game day decision, we got an aerial ladder to the rear and we were able to extend that aerial ladder and members stretched an inch and three quarter hose line. And they were able to put water into the fire compartment. A line down the hallway was not gonna allow us the opportunity because of the wind impacted fire to put water into the fire compartment. But in these non-fireproof buildings, if we have things like fire escapes or the ability to have a towel ladder in place or a well-positioned aerial, those are all things that are at our discretion to utilize. Maybe we're in a different wing of the building and we can operate across the wing into the other wing and get some water on the fire. The testing and field experience has proven if we're introducing water into the fire compartment, that water is going to have a very dramatic and very beneficial outcome on extinguishment. It's just overcoming the variables that the wind is introducing and doing it in a safe manner where our members aren't putting themselves in an overly hazardous environment. I think the main takeaway from, from these are, if we pull up and the front of the building is obscured, could it be something to do with the current atmosphere as far as humidity and things of that nature? It certainly could. But really, what's more concerning and more of a challenge for us operationally is, is that it's wind impacted. So I think we should all just start to develop that mindset that if that vent profile that we are seeing is not the typical vent profile of smoke or fire venting out the upper part of the window. The default for us operationally should be that this is a wind impacted fire. You know, one of the NIOSH five that they talk about is the inability to have a 360 and its contribution to numerous line of duty deaths around the country. The key to this whether it be a high-rise building or a low-rise, fireproof or non-fireproof, is getting that 360 and processing that vent profile and then making, making the right determination. Training came out with their tips for training, and one of the mottos that they use is windward is for winners, leeward is for losers. If we're on the windward side of the building, that is going to benefit our operations. If we are on the leeward side of the building, well, we're going to be on the exhaust portion of that flow path. And we've learned over the years, both through testing and fire ground experience, that being in that leeward part of that flow path is really going to just heighten the level of threat to our members and really tax our resources and limit the effects of our operating hose line. In the smaller dwellings, the non-fireproof dwellings, it should be a lot easier for us to take advantage of that smaller footprint and more properly position that line 
And whether it's going through a door or applying water through a window for a quick knockdown. The mindset in the fire service now is more of, is it interior fire control or exterior fire control? And the threat of uncontrolled fire, we all know, is significant. In a non-fireproof building, we deal with the potential for collapse. Of course, the thermal effects to our members, these things all come together. So it's good for all of us on the fire ground. The best water is quick water. And using that building, using that structure, and using our resources to the best of our ability to quickly put water on that fire is to everyone's benefit. The other interesting thing is this low intake, high exhaust dynamic that occurs or can occur in the stairwells from one floor to another floor. And in the research that UL has conducted, they basically are saying that you can have convected currents up the interior stairs 12 to 15 miles per hour. That basically is a wind-like movement of fire and there can be absolutely no wind whatsoever. It's about efficiency. Think about a wood-burning stove. If we open up those dampers and allow more air into the compartment, it's going to improve or increase the amount of combustion and the release of heat energy. It's about efficiency. The more air in, and if that air is getting to the seat of the fire, we're going to increase that heat release rate and very rapidly. One of the big things that once we started looking at fire suppression, ventilation tactics in 2012, we went to the concepts of the Department of Door Control and the three C's, right? Control, communicate, and coordinate. Tactical ventilation. Ventilation being tightly coordinated with suppression because of the rapid change on the fire ground that we now all understand happens with the modern fuels that are burning. So the three C's are for every fire. However, when wind is a factor, it's amplifying the need for those three C's to be remembered by the members operating. We talked a little bit about interior versus exterior fire control. Again, training has pushed this out to all of our members. They talk about the four S's. For exterior fire control, it should be a solid stream, which for our department, our organization, is pretty much across the board. We have smoothbore nozzles. It should be steady. We don't want to manipulate that nozzle, especially early in that application, because we don't want to entrain air. It should be at a steep angle, and it's going to be off the ceiling, so it's going to create a sprinkler-type effect. And We've seen it on the fire ground, we've seen it in our research, water applied to the fire compartment is gonna improve conditions. June of uh, 2022, there's a fire on 125th Street in South Ozone Park, Queens. Massive fire, tremendous amount of buildings that were affected, and there was a tremendous wind that day. What can you tell us about that fire? I was in the 13th Division that day, and, and the fire was actually in uh, relative proximity to the firehouse. Engine 308 transmitted to 1075 from blocks away based on the volume of smoke that they could see in the distance. Upon arrival, they immediately transmitted a second alarm because it appeared at the time that we had three attached private dwellings that had fire in all three dwellings. The battalion who's housed, the 5-1 that's housed with 308, Within 30 seconds of the second alarm, transmitted the third alarm based on conditions. Two of the three structures were occupied at the time of the fire. The front of the building 
on 125th Street was the leeward side. Some of the civilians were still in the process of evacuating the center building. And it wasn't until we started to get into our operations that people in the Exposure 2 building became aware of the fire. So now we're helping those people out. Our first initial attack lines, the first and second engines, stretched to the front of the building because of that life hazard. The third due engine officer very quickly got on the radio and made a very concise radio transmission that this was a wind-impacted fire and we needed to get lines to the rear. You know, sometimes I think we just kind of consider the role of the OV or maybe the chief in this decision-making process. This particular fire was a third due engine officer, and in the neighborhood I work in, basically everyone's coming in simultaneously. So this report basically happened as our tactics were starting to unfold. In Rockaway, a number of years ago, we had a third due engine chauffeur who was attaching to a hydrant on the rear of the building, saw the window fail, and saw the vent profile of a wind-impacted fire, and it was that member that gave the report. We show up, I think, on the initial alarm with 58 people on the fire ground. All we need is one of those folks to perceive the vent profile of a wind-impacted fire and make that report. That report is a game-changer. The third line that went to the rear, the engine officer made a decision to make it a two-and-a-half based on the volume of fire, which, more water, it's great. We made a report over to Handy Talkie because conditions were really deteriorating rapidly. 308 engine was the first due engine. The engine caught on fire. The air intake for the engine sucked embers in, and the engine wound up shutting down. We wound up losing water in the first two lines. The fire brands actually jumped the street and we wound up having fire in, in three dwellings on the other side of the street. We made a handy talkie report saying all available engine companies, when you respond in, come to the front of the building with a hose line. One of our engine officers was responding in on 124th Street, saw an available hydrant, realized the construction and, and the separations between the buildings, ordered his chauffeur to stop at the hydrant on 124th Street, charged the hose line, took down a PVC fence and got on the handy talkie and said, 331 engine to the 13, we're in the rear with a charged hose line, can we operate? That was a great officer thinking out of the box, being proactive, and that was one of the key factors, again, that quickly getting lines in the rear, we were able to take that out of control, wind impacted fire, and very quickly start to bring it under control. He had the wind at his back, correct? He was on the windward side, the wind on his back. Fantastic. And you can read more about that 125th Street fire in the spring of 2023, WMIF, in an article with myself and Pete Irish from the 5-1 Battalion. So let's get into what our officers and firefighters need to know, especially in the first dual role, because the sooner that recognition is made, the sooner we can adjust our tactics. So you mentioned it before, 360 being key. If I see flame or smoke coming out of a window or a door, wherever it's exiting the building, that ventilation profile, if it's not going straight up, if it's doing anything other than that, sideways, pulsating, swirling, whatever that may be, that's a true indicator that, hey, 
the wind is having an effect here. Now, can the wind ever have, let's just say, for lack of a better word, a positive effect? If the fire is on the leeward side of the building, especially in a multiple dwelling, the fire basically is gonna go from a high pressure of that fire area out the window to that lower pressure. So it can benefit us in some ways. We still have to be aware of it and make sure that it, it's a positive situation, not a negative situation. Absolutely. If that vent profile is anything different than up and out from the upper part of the window, we have to start the communication process. We have to make sure everyone on the fire ground is aware of it, and we have to use our tactical advantage of getting to the windward side of the building to apply our water. So and we don't necessarily have to make entry, but if we have the ability to put water into that fire compartment, we're going to start gaining control and taking a tactical advantage of that incident. We have to keep our members safe. The reality is if we go into the structure and members find themselves in a position where they're trapped, disoriented, lost, a mayday is given, well, now not only are members at a significant disadvantage and life-threatening situation, now our ability to better protect and serve the public is also being impacted by that because we're now dealing with the mayday, and that starts to take a level of priority over the overall incident. So to connect the dots between the, the fireproof and the non-fireproof, our alternate strategies in the, in the high-rise environment, everything from the high-rise nozzle or the wind control device, or even though it's not necessarily a, a wind control uh, situation, the pressurization of stairwells. I know a while back a chief had called me and asked me that on a, uh, a large H-type top floor fire, would you consider using the KO curtain or the fire blanket to block the wind? And, and my simple response to that was, again, we said it before about the differences between a high-rise building and a non-fireproof building. The high-rise building, the fire is not going to eat up the structure. In a non-fireproof, it can. We didn't test are wind control devices in a non-fireproof building. And so my answer to that was, uh, no, it's a no-go. The other reason is on a lower building, private dwellings and or any non-fireproof building, it's not gonna be that tall. We can probably get water on the seat of the fire as opposed to needing to block the wind. So getting water is always a priority. We get it where it's gotta go, things start to get better right away. The way our operations flow in a fireproof building, we put a wind control device very early in the operation to the floor above for that immediate situation where window failure occurs, members are trapped, they're isolated in a hallway, they can't get out, they're being subjected to this wind-impacted fire condition that is immediately a life threat to them. We deploy this wind control device, it buys us some time. It's a level of protection for our members that might find themselves in that situation where a hose line is not operating effectively to control that fire. Water is always the solution, right? Putting water into that fire compartment is always the end goal. So in a non-fireproof building, the tactical priority of water is going to be available to us, especially in a private dwelling. We can get it to where it needs to be very rapidly. And we should be utilizing those fire escapes from the floor below, get a line up the fire escape, and start getting water into those windows. And early on, especially if that fire is still a compartment fire, how much water is it going to take to darken down a bedroom or a living room? The flow from an ordinary hand line 
is going to be more than adequate to darken that fire down. And then we're going to size up the situation when it's appropriate. We're going to make that direct frontal attack at that point. In the non-fireproof buildings, we do have to have that concern for structural collapse. The fire on 125 Street in Queens, the center building turned out to be the original fire building, but we did have very early on a significant collapse in the rear because of the construction with the increased burning because of the wind. We need everyone to understand the indications of a wind-impacted fire. It doesn't have to be a high-rise. It can be the ground floor of a high-rise. It's the wind when it gets into the structure and when it has direct impact on that fire. So the main thing is that hazard recognition, that radio report, implementing our three Cs, and then implementing the most appropriate tactic to deal with the situation we have confronting us on the fire ground. And that's every incident. Simplest concept, get the wind at your back. Well, Chief, we covered an awful lot of material today. I thank you for being here. My pleasure, John. Be safe out there. Thank you for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.